Father, we acknowledge your presence tonight. Uh, we bow our heads in, in honor of the fact that you are God and your King and your Lord. And uh, we're just glad that you let us be a part of what you're doing in this world and in this universe for your glory. And tonight, as we continue to study how things are going to all play out in the days and months and years to come, uh, we start to get a little excited because we were moving from the bowls of your wrath to the hallelujah section of this study. But Lord, tonight we're going to wrestle with some real deep issues and some, some things that even in Christendom there's some debate. Lord, we just again ask you to help us to see what you want us to see. We're believing you're going to do the teaching. Father, I thank you that this group of folks that are here in this room and listening online uh, are wrestling with the Scriptures as well and listening to your Spirit. They're not just taking what Jim Johnson has to say. And Father, again, I just acknowledge my need of you to be the one who does the work. And I will just let you use me for this, this evening and for this purpose. And I again thank you for the privilege of being able to be a part of it. Lord, may we get even more excited about the days that we're living in because of what you're about to show us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 10, but we're going to mainly focus at the very beginning on verses 1 and 2, and then with whatever time we have left, we'll come and, and wrestle with some of the other verses. All right, so Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and one through 10. Now, before we get started, let me just give you a little trivia. If you were to ask most people, how many times is the word hallelujah in the Bible, and where is it? You'd be found, you actually, it's four times, it is only four times in the whole Bible, and it's all in this one chapter. And you'd be amazed, if you think hallelujah would be all through the Bible, but it's not. It's only in this chapter and only four times. Here's it, it says, After this I heard what sounded like a, the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and your, with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, Again, we will not have time tonight to deal with every aspect of these verses. Wherever we leave off is where we'll pick up next week. But I want to focus right now to start on verses 1 and 2. Look what happens here. John says, After this I heard what sounded like a roar of great multitude in heaven, shouting hallelujah. Which, by the way, transliterates into praise Jehovah. Alright? Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of His servants. Right now, praise is erupting in heaven because of God's justice and His judgments. I'm going to say that again. Praise is erupting in heaven because of God's justice and His judgments, or His justice in His ju judgments, whichever way you want to look at it. 
This day that they're celebrating now has long been predicted and the Scriptures have said that it was coming. So what I want to do right now is take us on a little Bible study through the Scriptures to show you how the Scriptures have long promised that there was a day coming when God would judge the world, when justice would be meted out, if you will, and things would be made right, where everything that has been kept on His records would be dealt with, and this day has been waiting, and it is coming, and they're celebrating the fact that God's justice is now happening or being seen. So put a bookmark here in Revelation 19. We'll come back in a little bit. Go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to start look at verse 31. Now again, to set up what's going on in context, Paul is in Athens, Greece. He is speaking on Mars Hill to a group of men called the Areopagus. And he had noticed that there were all these different idols or shrines to all these gods. And they even had one to the unknown god in case they missed one. Paul took that opportunity in Acts chapter 17 to say, the one you call unknown, let me tell you who he is. And he describes this God and talks about how he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands if he needed anything. For he gives all men life and breath and everything else. He talk, went on to talk about how he determined the time set for us in the exact places where we should live. And God did this so that when men would search for him and find him and these types of things. In him we live and move and have our being. And as he has gone and talked about all these times of things, in verse 31, though he talks about this day of judgment from this God and he says for he this God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead now according to that who is the man he's going to judge the world through Jesus Christ because he's risen from the dead all right now look look at what it says though God has already set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he appointed, which is Jesus. In heaven at this point, John sees that day. And they begin to praise God for His judgments and His justice. Go with me to Psalm chapter 1. We're going to read the whole psalm. It's just six verses. But way back at the very beginning of the psalms, where they had these songs, if you will, they spoke about and sung about God and His dealing with the wicked. In Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, listen to what it says. It said, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight, the blessed man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now we see here at the very beginning of the Psalms, there's a delineation or distinction between those who are righteous and those who are wicked. And we're going to deal with that in a little bit, so just stick with me on that. Um, Go to um, Proverbs chapter 11. We'll see another place where the scripture talks about the fact that there's a day of judgment for the wicked. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 21. I'm going to ask a couple of you to read your translations if you have something different than the NIV. I love NIV starts off with this and says, Be sure of this. The wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. 
Let me read it again. Be sure of this. The wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. Somebody else have a different translation. Go ahead, Cindy. New translation says, Evil people will surely be punished, but the children of the godly will go free. Evil people will surely be punished, but the children of the godly will go free. Go ahead. Somebody else have a different translation. King James, though hand joined in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. All right. There's an interesting picture there, though. Hand go in hand. Sounds like a couple people are working on a deal. You know? But the wicked will not go unpunished. Very clearly through Scripture, and, and by the way, for the sake of time, I did not take you to all the many places that talk about this. The Scripture continues to teach over and over that there is a day coming when the wicked will be judged and punished. But, let's be honest, we have a problem. And it's the same problem that, that the psalmist Asaph had in Psalm 73. Go to Psalm 73 and you'll see. Because our problem is this. Okay, I understand that one day there's going to be a judgment and all that. The Scripture says that. But don't we want to see judgment now? I mean, isn't that part of how we kind of think? I mean, how many of you have been driving on the highway and somebody goes blowing by you at 90 miles an hour, right? And you think, man, I hope there's a police car up there. How many of you have thought that, haven't you? And then there is a police car up there and they're pulled over when you get to where they are. And don't you drive by and think, yeah. They got theirs, you know? There, there is this side of us that wants justice now. Well, we have to be honest. That doesn't always happen in this life, does it? Not always. Look at what it says. This, now you have to realize, this is coming from a worship leader. This is coming from Asaph, okay? This is what he says in Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Pretty, pretty serious stuff for a worship leader, don't you think? But look what he says in verse 15. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus. In other words, this is what's in his heart. He has not shared it. He's not stood up at the front of church and said, hey guys, let me tell you what's going on in my head right now. But he said, if I, had, if I had spoken, I would have betrayed your children. But when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny, the wicked. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And then it goes on to talk about the fact how God takes care of him. But look at what Asaph said. He said, because I've been looking here for justice on this earth, it's been giving me some real problems. Even to the point that I feel like my innocence has been in vain and my worship has been in vain. But that's because he was looking for justice to happen here. 
The Bible has said that God will mete out His justice. But He never said that it would happen here. Asaph came to realize that one day they'll get theirs from God. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 19 though and let's take a look at this again. And I want to point something out to you that that when I first read this, it gave me a problem. They say, uh, they're shouting hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of His servants. Look at verses 3 and following. Again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then 24 elders fall down. And at first when I started to read this, I pictured that they were celebrating the death of the wicked. Doesn't it kind of look like that a little bit? But I also, because of the fact that I know a little bit of the Scriptures, I realized that can't be. Because that does not line up with who God really is. So, let me show you what I mean by that. Go in the book of Ezekiel to chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, we're going to look at verse 23, and then verses 30 through 32. Listen to what God says in Ezekiel 18. He said, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? The obvious answer to that question is God doesn't take pleasure in the wicked. But He even says it more clearly in verses 30 uh, through 32 in the same chapter. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you each one according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So if at this point in heaven there is pure, holy worship of God, it cannot be a... Let's dance around the circle. The wicked witch is dead. Remember on the on the, on the the Wizard of Oz when the wicked witch would die. They they had a party. I don't know how the song goes. If someone wants to sing it for us, you're welcome to. But I do know that the witch, wicked witch is dead, right? But that can't be what's happening here in Revelation 19. They can't be celebrating the death of the wicked because that is not the heart of God. So what are they celebrating? They're celebrating the justice. Of God. See, we love to celebrate His mercy. That's a big part of who God is. We love to celebrate His patience, His long suffering. We love to celebrate His love. But the Bible also says God is a God of justice, of right and wrong. And all sin must be punished. The good news is He's provided a way for which we can escape the punishment for our sin. Through Jesus Christ. And did you catch it there in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32? I'm sorry, verse 31. He said, Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. By the way, that's the only way you can be right in the eyes of God. You know, earlier we had read that God is good to those who are pure in heart. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But there's a passage in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. We won't turn there. But in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the Scripture says, The heart is what? It's wicked beyond cure. 
Yet there's a world out there that thinks that if I just work a little bit better, I can be righteous in the eyes of God. But here we see the answer to it. You can't cure your heart. If it's a human heart that we've been given, we're wicked from birth. But God says He'll give us a new heart and a new spirit. That's why He told Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh, He said, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. At this point in Revelation chapter 19, they are celebrating the justice of God. They are worshiping Him for this attribute of His character. They're not celebrating the death of the wicked. That is not the heart of God. They're celebrating His justice. They're celebrating His justice. Because every aspect of who He is is pure and perfect. And when He executes His justice, it is perfect. And doesn't that make you worship Him a little bit more for the fact that you're not going to get what you deserve? I mean, if you really think about the fact that He is going to execute His justice perfectly. Matthew chapter 12, I think verse 46 says, He'll keep track of every idle word. Thank God I'm not going to be held accountable for every idle word. But because of Jesus Christ. And you know what? I think that's a part of what's happening here in this worship of Him as well. As they see Him execute His justice on those who have rejected Him, does it not at the same time even more help them appreciate what they have been given in the free gift of salvation? When you see what He could have done to us, you'll worship Him even more for the gift of forgiveness that, he had, that you had received. I'll tell you, it kind of uh, somewhat of an illustration. Years ago when I was a young buck and thought I was super strong, I uh, was associate pastor of a church in New Orleans, and there was a deacon in that church named Willis Cloy. And he was 80 years old at the time. And he had grown up his whole life working on a farm. And he had pretty strong grip. One Sunday I was uh, decided I was going to shake his hand, and for the fun of it I thought, I'm going to put a little squeeze on this 80-year-old man here, show him a thing or two. And so I squeezed his hand, and he decided to squeeze back. Well, I decided I can't let this guy outdo me, so I squeezed a little harder. And uh, he squeezed a little harder. So now we're going back and forth, each amping it up a little bit more. And at this point now, I am giving him everything I have. And he's not flinching. But again, being a guy, you don't want to ever let on that you've given everything you have. You want to pretend you have more. And I looked him in the eye and I said, I'm taking it easy on you, old man. He said, I'm taking it easy on you. And he popped me one real quick. I went to the floor. And I realized he was taking it easy on me. It made me say, you know what? Thank you very much for taking it easy. He could have crushed me. But it made me respect him even more when I realized what he had spared me from. In the same way, in a much greater scale, when we see God execute his full squeeze, if you will, you'll say, holy are you. Salvation is from you, and thank you for what it is you have given me. We're not celebrating the death of the wicked. That's not who God is. That's not His heart. But it is a worship of the fact that God has spared us much. Spared us much. Let's move on to verses 3 through 10. We see in verse 3, they say, They shall hallelujah again, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. 
Then the voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. I'm going to stop here for a second. And we're going to start to break down this wedding, the wedding supper. I believe there's a difference between the wedding and the wedding supper. We're going to deal tonight with who's the bride, because there's some discrepancy among Christians as to who the bride may be. We're going to, we're going to wrestle with all these things. So I'm going to tell you now, put your deep theology caps on because we're going to I'm going to make you wrestle with some things tonight. I'm not going to give you the answer right away. I'm going to start off by teaching you some things and then I'm going to give you some scriptures that don't go together. And I'm going to see how you wrestle with it because again, my purpose isn't just to teach you and tell you what I think it says. My purpose is to teach you how to study the word of God for yourself. How to let him teach you. So we're going to get to that tonight. As I see this picture of this sound of a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, it just, I can't wait because I've had a taste of this. Years ago when I was pastoring in Chicago, we took a group of men to Soldier Field to a Promise Keepers conference there at Soldier Field where the Bears play their football games. And at this time there were sixty to 70,000 men in the stadium because the stadium itself was full and they also had seats all in the whole football field. And So there was a great, big crowd of men. And when that group of men all sang together Amazing Grace or How Great Thou Art, the sound of it was unbelievable. But we had no idea what an effect it was having in downtown Chicago. If you've been to Chicago, Soldier Field is not far from downtown. And the wind was blowing just off the lake. And we didn't know it. But the sound of these men's voices singing How Great Thou Art or Amazing Grace as we were singing at the top of our lungs was wafting out of that stadium over the city of Chicago and people were falling to their knees and getting right with God because they had no idea what was going on at the football stadium because there were three other events going on in the city that same weekend and people thought that there were angelic choirs. And they literally were just like, do you hear that? Do you hear that? And people were I hear that too. And people were literally falling on their knees and getting right with God. It was awesome. Just got a taste of what it's going to be like. Said the sound of rushing waters and thunder. It was just, oh man, it's going to be awesome, guys. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. But the question is, okay, what is this wedding? Who is this bride? Now in order to do this, we have to teach you a little bit first about the Jewish or the Hebrew marriage ceremony. There's, there's four aspects to the marriage ceremony or to the wedding when it came to the, 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 the Jewish way of doing things. The first was the engagement or the betrothal period. All right. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. Okay, Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. Now this betrothal period, as you're about to see, is, was just as binding as marriage. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, betrothed. But before they came together, just talking sexually, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, 
He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Why was he trying to divorce her if they weren't married yet? Because the betrothal was binding. It was just like you were married. It was a part of the whole marriage thing. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Here we see a picture of this betrothal period. When a a Jewish man was to be getting married to a Jewish woman, he would get engaged to her. They would seal the deal, if you will. And he he would actually work with the price with the father and the agreement. He would purchase her, if you will. She would then go make herself ready. He would go back to his place and prepare to set up for married life. And when he was had, when he had everything ready, whether it was building a house or whatever it was, and getting the marriage ceremony set up and all that, when he was ready, he would come back and get her. All right. So that's the first part: is the engagement or the betrothal period. All right. And what I want to show you is the Bible teaches that we, the the, the church, have been betrothed to Jesus Christ. He's purchased us. You know how the Scripture says you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter five. I'm going to read verses 22 through 32. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Here we see a picture of Paul's teaching on husband-wife relationship, but he's saying there's a relationship in the same way between Christ and the church. The husband-wife relationship is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. He is the husband, we're the wife, or the bride at this point, because we're still in the betrothal period. He hasn't come back to get us, has he? No. Not yet, but he's preparing a place. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. One of the other parts of the Jewish wedding was that the son would go back and usually build onto the father's house. You're getting ahead of us, you rascal. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Keep going. The son was not the one who got to decide when it was time to get the bride. It was the father. It was the father. That's right. For those who didn't hear, and by the way, I found, praise the Lord, there are many people listening to this online. 
And uh, actually, I have, have been told uh, by one person today, actually, uh, when there's somebody speaking up, I have to kind of repeat it so people listening online can catch it. And what Allison was just sharing is that uh, when the son went away, he usually added on to his father's house. And the son didn't determine when he came back, but it was the father who told the son, okay, now you're ready. Go, it's time. Go get, go get your bride. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. While you're turning, I'll also tell you I got a phone call from somebody today uh, who said, when is, when is the Bible study going to be updated on the website? And I said, whenever I teach it. And <laughs> this person didn't know that we had taken a week off. And they were, they were like, went to the website and it wasn't there. I said, it'll be up Wednesday. So, praise the Lord, there are people listening so, uh, and studying with us. All of you that are listening right now, you're missing out on all the snacks, though. There's lots of good snacks here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1-3. through 3. I hope you'll put up with a little of my foolishness, Paul says. But you're already doing that. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Again, Paul sees this relationship of the church as a bride of Christ. But now, stick with me. I'm going to show you some things that are going to make you go, okay, I thought I understood this, now I'm not sure I do. So just stick with me and it will become clear in a little time, hopefully. Alright, so the groom has gone to prepare a place. That's the first part of the betrothal. The second part of the marriage ceremony is the processional. This is the time when the bridegroom comes to get his wife and gets his, get his bride and to take her back with him to the place for the marriage ceremony. Um, one of these passages, hopefully you could probably quote to us, but if you, if you can't, go to John chapter 14 and you'll see Jesus talk about this himself. John chapter 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. A picture of this processional part. Jesus says in John 14, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You see it? He's purchased us. He's gone to prepare a place. He's going to come back and get us. It gets pretty exciting when you see how this continues to tie together. Now, let me take you to another passage that we know real well, but we're going to look at it with this picture of Him coming to get His bride. Go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul says, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Here Paul's dealing with those who have died and the people in the church saying, I, I thought you were teaching He was going to come and get us. 
What about those who have already died? They missed it. And he said, no, they didn't miss it. They're going to come with him when he comes. Their bodies are going to come up out of the ground. And those of us who are left at that time, we're going to be changed. Paul talked about that later on or another time in 1 Corinthians. He said, let me tell you a mystery. We're not all going to die. We're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, faster than a blink of an eye, it's going to happen. But it's when Jesus comes to get us. Now, let me just tell you, whether you live to see the rapture or not, Jesus is going to come to get you in your lifetime. We saw in the, Jesus tell the story in Luke chapter 16 of Lazarus and the rich man. When Lazarus died, what happened? Angels came and got him and brought him into the presence of God, called Abraham's bosom. When you die, Jesus comes to get you. So whether you see the rapture or not, you will see the return of Jesus to come get you if you're his bride. And so that's a neat, neat thing. So we have the first part, which is the betrothal, or the engagement period, which was binding. Secondly is the processional, when he comes back and gets us. The third is the private wedding ceremony. Once the groom, bridegroom went and got his bride and, and had the big processional to go get her, and then the group all went back, the wedding ceremony itself was actually very private. Wasn't a big thing like we have our weddings today. It was a very private thing. And actually, most of the wedding ceremony actually incorporated the husband-wife relationship of the sexual intercourse. Actually, people would be there for the ceremony, but he would go off privately with his bride into a little tented area, and they would consummate the marriage. You'll see throughout Scripture that actually God sees the sexual relationship between man and woman as the same thing as marriage. It's kind of intertwined in the same way as baptism and our salvation are very similar. You know how the Bible teaches you know, that when someone believed, they were baptized. It was a part of their profession of their faith. That's, you know, nowadays we say pray a prayer and then later on get baptized. In the Bible, if you believe the message of the preacher, the way you proved it was you didn't pray a prayer you were baptized. In the same way, God sees the sexual relationship as marriage. That's why He's pretty serious about how we conduct ourselves in that area. But I want to show you a picture of this in Genesis chapter 24. A little picture of the wedding ceremony in Genesis chapter 24. Now in this story, um, Isaac um, needs a wife, and Abraham sends out his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac, which is a wonderful picture of God the Father sending out the Holy Spirit to woo a bride for his son. And it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. And he finds her, and he woos her, and she says yes, and she then goes to meet him in Genesis 24. Look at verses 62 through 66. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahoi Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So he, she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all that he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. You see the picture there? So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after the, his mother's death. Here we see that picture of this, the, the private wedding ceremony. So there's the betrothal. There is the processional where the, bride comes, the bridegroom comes to get his bride. Then there's the private wedding ceremony. And then after that is the fourth part, which is the wedding supper or the celebration. 
Alright? Now, I'm not going to show scriptures dealing with the wedding celebration because we're going to be dealing with that in great detail later on. It'll be next week. It won't be tonight. Alright? So I just want you to get these parts in your mind. First is the betrothal. It's binding. That's what happened. It's happened to us. He's come and got us uh, or purchased us as his, as his bride. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And when he's ready, he'll come back and get us. And we'll go be with him. Then there'll be the marriage ceremony. And then there's going to be the celebration or the wedding supper. So go back now to Revelation chapter 19. We'll start to really dive into the chewy part of this study, though. The question is, who is this bride? Now you say, Jim, I think you already just showed us. You've been telling us it's us, the church. Well, yes, but... I'm going to show you some scriptures that might make you question what I've just said. And I'm doing it for a reason. I want you to wrestle with the scripture. Alright? Too often, when we come across things that don't make sense to us, many of us just say, whoa, and we leave it alone. But actually, if you're willing, because the scripture of God is able to handle our questions, if you're willing to take the time, you'll get answers. So I'm going to teach you how to do that a little bit tonight. Alright? So... I've already touched on the fact that the church is described in this manner in Ephesians 5 and 2 Corinthians 11. But some say that Israel is to be the bride, could be the bride. And I'll show you why. Uh, and I'll stick with me here, okay? Because I'm about to show you scriptures that seem to totally contradict what I just said. Alright, but go to Hosea, the book of Hosea. Chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 14 through 23. Give you a little extra time. I know this one not, we're not real good at finding that one sometimes. But it's right after Hosea chapter 1. Alright? Alright, look at verses 14 through 23 of chapter, chapter 2. Now, this is a passage dealing with the millennial kingdom. Alright? God says, Therefore I am now going to allure her, talking about the nation of Israel... I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. When, when is Israel going to go to the desert? During the tribulation period. Remember, the Antichrist is going to step into the temple going to, in the second half. He's going to declare himself to be God, put an end to sacrifice, and they're going to run, the ones that do run, run for their lives to the desert. God says, I'm going to lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, does that signal that we're talking about the end days here. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the bales from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all men may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the oil. 
They will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those who called not by my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Here very clearly, God says that in the, in, in the millennial kingdom, the bride of Christ, or the bride of God, is going to be Israel. You're going to call me your husband. I'm going to betroth you. Let me show you another place. Go to Isaiah 62. We'll read verses 1 through 12. I want you to see this. I'm going to wait until you get there. Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 12. It says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married as a young man marries a maiden, so your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent or night. Sorry, day or night. You will call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by His mighty arm, Never again will I give you a grain as food for your enemies, and never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it, and and praise the Lord. Those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to this daughter of Zion, see your Savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after the city no longer deserted. Again, talking about that time at the end of the tribulation period when God fulfills his promise with the nation of Israel, sets up his millennial kingdom, and in this prophecy he again says, I'm going to rejoice as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Sure looks like Israel's the bride, doesn't it? Yes, I see that hand. At this time, they'll have believed in Jesus, and in that instance, they will be the church. All right, Elise says that at this time, they will have believed in Jesus, and at that time, they'll be the church as well? Is that what you're saying? Not the church, but the people. You think they'll be the bride at that time? Well, everyone, all the Christians. Oh, okay. The dead in Christ are going to raise first. Mm-hmm. And that's the dead in Christ. And it's got to be the church, even if it's Israel. Alright. There is a clue in this passage right here. If you'll compare something in this passage with Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. So I'm going to give you the clue. Alright, it's in verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 62. If you compare Isaiah 62, verses 11 and 12... With Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Now believe me, this is not an easy thing to see. You're not going to look at it and go, oh, I see it. You're going to have to look at it. 
But at this time, when John sees them say, The wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready, has Jesus returned to the earth yet? So if God considers the nation of Israel as a bride, which the Scripture says He does, when will that occur? When He comes back. In Revelation 19, we see He doesn't come back till verse 11 and following. Now look closely now at Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now jump over to Revelation 19, verses 11 and following. Listen to what it says. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. His, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and what? Dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So we see now, whoever these people are that have been given white linen to wear which they, the Scripture says is the bride who's made herself ready, are now going to be coming with Jesus when He comes back to the earth to set up His kingdom. When does Israel turn back to the Lord? At the end of the tribulation, when Jesus Himself comes back. Alright, so let me show you. Go to the book of Zechariah, chapter 14 and chapter 12. We're going to go to 14 first and then chapter 12. The book of Zechariah. In chapter 14, verses uh, 1 through 7, we see a picture of the return of Jesus Christ. This is what it says. It says, The day of the Lord is coming, when your plunder will be divided among you. I'll gather, gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. On that day, He will set His feet on His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from the east to the west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You'll flee by My mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord My God will come, and all the holy ones with Him. On that day, there will be no light. No cold nor frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime. A day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. Again, here's the picture of Jesus at the end of the tribulation period coming Himself to set up His kingdom on the earth. Who's coming with Him? The Holy Ones, as we just saw in Revelation 19, 11 and following, especially verse 14, where those who have already been dressed in the white linen. All right. Now look at chapter 12, though, verses 10 uh, through 14. God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. 
On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. The nation of Israel does not turn back to Jesus until Jesus comes and sets up His kingdom on the earth. That's when they look on Him, they pierce. That's when they say, we were wrong. That's when they say, you are the Messiah. That's when they worship Him. That's when He reestablishes that husband and wife relationship that He used to have with them. Because if you do a study of the nation of Israel, He called them His bride. He called them His wife. He said in Jeremiah chapter 2, I remember when as a young bride you followed me in the wilderness. But then in verse 6 he says, you stopped asking, where is the Lord? In verse 8 he says, your priest stopped asking, where is the Lord? And then we see in Hosea, he actually gives them a certificate of divorce. Because they had turned away from him and worshipped other gods. Yet, he says, one day I will bring you back to me. As a husband to a wife. You no longer call me master, you're going to call me husband. But that does not happen to the nation of Israel until after Jesus has come back to the earth with the Holy Ones. Do you understand? So back here in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8 though, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. At this point, Jesus hasn't returned to the earth. So Israel hasn't made herself ready yet. But who's been made ready? The church, who has been raptured during this time period, we don't know how long it takes or whatever, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, receive what we reward for what we've done in the body after salvation, whether good or worthless, and He's going to give us white robes to wear, and we're the ones who are coming with Him when He comes back to the earth. So who is the bride in this picture here in Revelation 19? Now listen to me. I think... The bride is the church here in this section. But I also believe that Israel will receive the same type of relationship that we have been given. And at some point, and I'll get right to you, those two hands I see up. At some point, there will come a point where, during the millennium and then into eternity, there will be no more of a distinction at some point. Go ahead. Your question was. So, Israel does not have to come to faith in Jesus Christ before he returns to the earth? No, no. Individual, individual Jews are coming to faith right now. And they become part of the church. But I'm saying, what mm-hmm. about those who do not come to faith by the time Jesus, Jesus comes back and sets His feet on the Mount of Olives? What do you say? Well, honestly, in my estimation, I believe that they're going to be kept alive. That they're going to, If they haven't received the mark of the beast, they're going to look on Him whom they pierced, and they're going to come to faith at that time. Remember, the Antichrist is going to make everybody take the mark of the beast to be able to buy or sell. And the Bible is very clear. If you take the mark of the beast, you cannot be saved. But are, are those Jews that did not take the mark, have they not already accepted Christ? Well, some have. But there will be those who are going to be killed, and that we call them the tribulation saints, be killed for their faith. Go ahead. But there have been several passages, like um, the sixth trumpet, where it says that the rest of mankind who were not killed will not repent. Right. But it's yet, not talking about the nation of the nation of Israel. Paul says very clearly, when Jesus comes back, they will they will be saved. So all the Jews, even though they've not accepted Christ, when Christ comes back, they will become uh, saved by the blood of Jesus. 
They were, when they put their faith in him, yes. When we just read in Zechariah. Well, they'd be better for them if they do it sooner, that's for sure. Because there's no guarantee that they're going to make it through that time period. Because the Antichrist is going to go to just kill as many as he can. Let's be honest, if the Antichrist is killing the two witnesses, he's going after all of them. The ones that have died before that, if they have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, there is no opportunity for them to be saved, even though they're Jews. All right, so they're not spared because they're Jews. So you don't think that when it's talking about Israel as a whole, I mean, there's a picture of them fleeing to the desert, and, and you don't think at that point when they're receiving manna from the hand of God that they're going to come in mass to Christ at that point? Now, again, that could be a possibility. I'm just simply saying it appears from the Scripture that when they look on Him whom they pierced, that's when they're going to mourn. You see what I'm saying? It appears that it's at that time that they turn to Him. Go ahead, Chris. In that case, in, in chapter 14, where it says that the uh, ship will make the hours come and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe, at that point, that seemed to be when anyone who would ever believe in Christ had made that decision. Because after that, that's when the rats are going to be poured out. So in that case, then, even the Jews that are alive, well, and again, there is a possibility of what you guys are saying. There is a possibility that there are those who have come to faith before Jesus actually actually comes, and I will grant that. But it, it does appear, though, that there is something happening when Jesus Himself comes. They're going to be looking on Him. I'm not saying that. Well, you know, I, I think that the morning I mean, is just a realization of kind of like, you know, each one of us would have at different times in our, in our own individual walk where mm-hmm. you, you already believe, but something happens or you see some event or whatever that, that just kind of cements it, you know, kind of brings it all home. Okay. And it's kind of I understand what you're saying, and even so, that doesn't change what we're looking at here, though, as well. For the fact of, even if these people, Jews, are coming to faith prior to the actual appearance of Jesus Christ, they're not the ones described here in Revelation 19 who have made herself ready and they've received their white robes. Because they're still on the earth. Do you see what I'm saying? The bride here in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, appears to be the group that's in heaven who have made herself ready. They've been given white robes to wear. And it appears that those are the same people that are coming back with Jesus, dressed in those white robes, when He comes to set up His kingdom. Well, I agree with you on that. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, is, even if what we're saying here is where you guys are right, and, and what I'm saying might not be true, it doesn't change what we're talking about in the fact that the church in this picture in Revelation 19 is, is still the bride. Well, I think the passage you referenced earlier in Hosea chapter 2, He's always talked about the nation of Israel all throughout the scriptures as being, you know, the, the, his his people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that passage in Hosea saying, "I will, you know, those who were not my people will be my people." I think there it, it is showing that it is broader than just the nation of Israel. Again, that's a possible interpretation of that passage where it says, "Not my people." But you also have to realize when in that section in Hosea, Hosea was told to marry a prostitute. And he was told she's going to leave you, and she did. And then she made babies with somebody else. And uh, Hosea was to name that child, not my people, you know, kind of a deal, as a picture of the nation of Israel. 
is what it was a picture of, though. And so, you have to remember, he, he, he had dispersed them in his anger. But then he says, at some point, I will gather you back. So it could be both. The, go ahead, Herb. I have a passage running through my head. I don't know whether it's not Speaking of the millennial period in Isaiah, he says, in larger tents, lengthen his stakes, make it broad, says, more shall be the children of the desolate than the children of the married. Mm-hmm. And I gather by that that the population of Israel would explode during the millennium. Tremendously. But how does that fit? Because not, not the desolate is compared to the married. I think mm-hmm. the married was when they had a good relationship. Well, you have to realize during the millennium, you know, only the righteous will make it into the millennium at the start. That's very clear. Only the righteous will make it into the beginning of the millennium. But during that time, people are going to be making babies. You know, because people will live through the tribulation. They'll be making babies. And during a thousand years, a lot of babies will be born. During that time, as you know, at the end, Satan will come up, and we'll get to that. We're ahead of ourselves a little bit in Revelation. But Satan will come up out of the pit that he's been bound in for a thousand years. And he'll tempt those on the earth to fight against Jesus, who's been ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. So there's going to be a group of people, a, a massive number, who even though they're living in a time of righteousness, aren't believing. They're under the yoke, if you will, but they're not liking it. I see a hand in the back. Go ahead. Yeah, during this period of time in Revelation 6, 3, or 7, 3, mm-hmm. it says, saying, Heard not the earth, neither the sea, the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. This is that's the, that's the 144,000 witnesses that go out to preach all over the whole world. Yes. Are they Jewish? Yes. Yes. So. Those are Jewish. Very clearly. And Those are Jewish. Part of these, are they part of this? They're, they're going to be a part of living in the millennium and all that kind of stuff, but they're Jewish. It's very clear from the fact that 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, they go out to preach during all this time. Like I say, the discrepancy is, um, is the only time that the nation of Israel come to faith in Jesus when he comes back? I'm not saying that, but I, I believe that there will be those who make it through that horrible time, who are Jews, who come to faith in Jesus Christ when he comes back on, on the earth. What I'm trying to show you is, in Revelation 19, though, it's obvious that the timing makes this the church that's the bride in this instance. Even though God will treat the nation of Israel as a bride, has called her a bride, there are those who teach that the bride is Israel and not the church, never was the church, and there are those who actually teach that this is all having to do with Israel and the church is just something different. I think the church is considered the bride in this passage. Because of the fact that they're already in heaven, they're given right robes to wear, and they're going to come back with him when he sets up his kingdom on the earth. Now, let me tell you, as we get even further in this study over the next few weeks, and we start looking at millennial kingdom and different responsibilities or roles for these people or for that people, or does this refer to the tribulation saints, or does this refer to the Old Testament saints, and these types of things, it gets very, very confusing, and I will be honest with you, I don't fully understand it. My role is to study it, share it, and that you guys wrestle with it from there. That's all I'm supposed to do. So, like I say, um, I actually have people that I've been researching with, and we still don't all agree on it. But this is where we're at. Right now, we know that there's going to be a wedding. It appears that the marriage itself, or the wedding ceremony, that secret ceremony part, is going to happen in heaven. I actually lean toward the, the wedding supper happening on the earth. 
There are some that think, Tim LaHaye being one, thinks that uh, um, the, the wedding marriage supper, or the wedding supper is going to happen in heaven. Some of you might have even seen that painting that's out there of the big long table, you know, in the clouds and it goes on forever and ever kind of a thing. That's because some people think that the wedding supper is going to happen in heaven. I think, and we're going to, I'll show you why scripturally when we come back next week, I think that the marriage supper is going to happen on the earth. And I think it's a big celebration as he comes back with his bride and the invited guests, I believe, are the nation of Israel and tribulation saints are invited guests at this wedding supper. And that's why he says here in verse 9, after he said, the wedding of the Lamb has come and her bride has made herself ready, and then she was given these white robes to wear. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he said, these are the true words of God. And so we'll come back next week to where we are. We need to stop for now. But go ahead, Edith, if you want to ask a question. Sure. About the wedding supper? Alright, a couple of places you can look at are uh, um, Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Matthew chapter 26, verse 25. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 and following. Those will be a starting place. Is that good enough? Okay, I hope I can remember them again. Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. 26, 25. And, and please, if I quoted these wrong, I apologize, but I think I'm right. And Luke 22, 14 and following. Why I think it's going to be on earth. Why I think the marriage supper is going to be on earth. It's a celebration. And I'm only, we're going to get to next week where there's a chance that that whole marriage supper and all that stuff's going to happen during those interesting... Extra 75 days in the book of Daniel, chapter 12. Because you remember, if we went, when we did our study of Daniel, there was 1,260 days, but then blessed are those who make it to the 1,290, and blessed are those who make it to the 1,335. Why are these extra days? I think there's a chance that the wedding supper lasts during that whole first part of the millennium, during that time period. It should be interesting. Again, I don't have it all figured out. I'm sharing with you what I think I know. And... Uh, You might actually teach me a few things during this journey. All right, let's pray together again. Father, thank you for this chance. Thank you for people that are serious about this, hungry, who are wrestling with it. Uh, And Lord, I'm still wrestling with it. But that's the neat thing is, is uh, you've got it under control. And whether we got it right or even teaching it right, you're going to have it all work out the way it's supposed to be. But Lord, it is our desire to know your word to be faithful to teach your word properly. Lord, I know that I'll be held in high accountability because of the role you've given me because I'm saying thus says the Lord. Lord, at the same time, I only want to say it because of what I think you've said in your word. And Lord, I just pray that you'll help each of us now to do some more study and allow you to speak to our hearts. And Lord, may we love each other in the whole process of maybe not even seeing it the same. But Lord, may that be a further evidence of the fact that you're real because the most important thing is you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.